NFTs, cryptocurrency, blockchain, tokenization. There's more hype than ever for these technologies and endless debate on the utility of this technology. While consumers are attempting to understand the value of cryptocurrency, governments and private firms across the globe, they're doing the same. And they're experimenting with the idea of a central bank for digital currency that will help adapt and meet changing consumer needs. What I think everyone needs to wrap their head around is that at the widest possible level, broad aspects of the financial services system, financial infrastructure system, went from paper to electronic in the early 2000s. And now what we're seeing 20 years later is the move to go from electronic to tokenized. The wave of investment in digital currency is gaining momentum, and that wave is likely to crash onto the shores of the financial industry sooner rather than later. David Treat is the Senior Managing Director and Global Blockchain Lead at Accenture and the Director of the Digital Dollar Project. On this episode of IT Visionaries, David speaks to the importance and future of digital payments, how central bank digital currencies will revolutionize financial independence for emerging countries, and how the future will be a safer financial environment. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Senior Managing Director at Accenture, David Treat. Dave, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, great to be here. All right, Accenture is a huge company. Uh, we know that, like we said, it, it covers a lot of things. People inside Accenture all have different domain experience. What specifically is your domain experience and what are you working on at Accenture? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I think I've got the coolest job. I get to, to focus. I've got a team that takes everything that's ready to graduate from our applied research, our R&D function. We've got Accenture Labs, which is an amazing set of people who are constantly working with the cutting edge in technology, inventing new things, you know, patents, prototypes, et cetera. And at some point in time, we realized that it, there's, it's ready for client use and it's ready to build a business around. And that's where my team comes in. So it's called the Tech Incubation Group. We've got to combo strategist, consultant, architect, developer, entrepreneur, kind of all wrapped into one. And we translate, uh, we translate very complex cutting edge technology into how to make it practical and useful for real business, real value, real people. So within that, most excited about, and I think we want to talk, you know, talk mostly about today, uh, digital currency and the whole space and how we're fundamentally reshaping financial infrastructure off the back of a set of new technologies inclusive of blockchain, DLT, and a few others. Yeah, let's dive right into that. I believe you guys call it the digital dollar project. Is that accurate? That's one manifestation um, of it, actually. So I've got a, I have a global team um, working with central banks around the world, working with private institutions on stable coins, working um, in a variety of different forms and factors. And the digital dollar project is something that we, we um, have kicked off as a as a, uh, a charitable, uh, you know, it's a pro bono activity, uh, a program that we launched with a former, former CFTC chairman, uh, Christian Carlo, his former head of CFTC labs, Daniel Gorfine, uh, Charlie Giancarlo, uh, who's, who's played a number of roles in, in industries. We all got together and we said, look, there wasn't enough dialogue about central bank digital currency running in the United States context. 
Uh, and as the as the world's dominant reserve currency, and of course, as our you know within our global position, that ability to to get the dialogue going and moving in a U.S. context, we saw as super important as we were working with central banks around the world and with with other countries. You know, things in the public domain were were working with Sweden and Riksbank, which is the the very first uh, is actually the the very first central bank in you know in uh, in in history. Always been leading edge and and innovative. Uh, working with uh, Banque de France and, and many others around uh, around the world, so wanted to get it going in the U.S. So we launched the Digital Dollar Project to get get the dialogue moving and to support the journey, however we could. So there's many dimensions. You kind of just hit on it. You're relying on new technologies, different technologies, emerging technologies, things that you guys are incubating, things that just exist, taking advantage of it. Let's kind of take a step back and because what I want to do is help frame up the picture for someone who maybe doesn't know what's happening right now, right? So. Where are we today? Today we see that Bitcoin specifically, you mentioned stable coins, but Bitcoin specifically seems to be becoming more adopted. You have big publicly traded institutions willing to take positions in Bitcoin on their balance sheet. I saw recently just today, Goldman Sachs is offering it as a way, you know, they're, they're going to start offering it. Some, so some of the institutional banks are going to allow a private investor to use and hold Bitcoin, probably other stable coins, as you suggested. Talk about what's happening because there was this rise and you know, it seems to start, I wouldn't say it's mainstream yet, but there does seem to be a growing number of people that are now aware that cryptocurrency could potentially be an alternative to what they're currently spending, you know, holding as cash. Talk about what you see is happening in the global scale and then kind of talk about your eccentric part in playing the parts it's playing. Yeah, that notion of, of Bitcoin as cash, right? There, there are multiple competing views out there. I think the prevalent one is that it, it, it really is an asset right. and not a, not a currency or cash. Obviously, it can be spent and that's very unique around it. If I pull back a, a layer, what's been unlocked with the technology is the, is the notion of being able to have uh, uniqueness in the digital world, right? I, I can prove that I can make something provably unique and therefore um, you know, the terminology of double spends, the whole notion of I can own something in the digital world is the, is the foundational capability that's at play here. Um, obviously, applying it to money, super powerful. And so, this, so the notion of the, the umbrella term of digital currency, it's important to understand how that breaks down underneath, where cryptocurrency um, obviously got this whole ball moving and, and, you know, and started this whole innovation wave is one flavor. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the notion of turning, you know, adding a third form of money of fiat currency in the form of a central bank digital currency at the other end, and then this notion of stable coins in the middle. And understanding the interplay between the three and why they're different is important. But at the end of the day, what underpins them is all the same fundamental technology of of tokenization and the notion of having uniqueness in the digital world, and that these things are are essentially digital bearer instruments. So. What I think everyone needs to wrap, you know, wrap their head around is that, again, at the widest possible level, broad aspects of the financial services system, financial infrastructure system, went from paper to electronic in the early 2000s. Yeah. And now what we're seeing 20 years later is the move to go from electronic to tokenized, because that can just simplify many, many types of, of uh, or aspects of the complex financial system that's built up over the decades. That's all based on messaging and reconciliation. And so this powerful notion of a digital bearer instrument, you're going to see, you know, tokenized traditional securities, tokenized, you know, equities, bonds, you know, you know, and the like, 
you know, all kind of coming into this space. And so people, you know, what we're doing with clients is wrapping collectively our heads around what does this mean? How do they actually, you know, modernize their systems? What value does it create? And what what types of uh, financial processes will change? Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about into some of the benefits because you kind of hit it on it just a little bit as what you were talking about. Um, I want to dive into it, but one of the things I wanted to bring up was, you know, I think this changed my mind forever on what is money. Someone asked, so I I made a comment that I don't understand. I don't understand tokenization. I don't understand cryptocurrency. And someone said to me, the reason why you don't understand it is because you actually think you understand money at all. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, what is money today? And then I was like, uh, and I was thinking about it. It's like, it's literally a data point. It's a data point that I'll use my bank name, right? Bank of America says I have this much cash data point. Capital One says I owe this much cash <laughs> data point. And somehow every month or two weeks, you know, mission sends some data into my bank of America and says I owe money. And Capital One says you owe me some data to pay off this data number. And I send some data there. I turn my number down in bank of America. And then my number goes down also in Capital One. And it's just constant movement of numbers but that what that person was trying to point out to me was that you actually don't have any money like you you're just it's just numbers floating around and i was like oh it's like so what's different and i was like i i don't know so <laughs> so talk to us a little about you mentioned that electronic to tokenization that transfer what does that mean for us as consumers and what does it mean for like you mentioned the central banks that are now going to govern oversee depend however you want to say like the how does it impact the monetary system yeah, so so let's let's pick off maybe the most relatable part of it, right? So you know, you and I decide we're going to meet up. We're going to go to the corner store, and we're just we, you know, we want to go. We want to go get uh, you know get a few sodas and uh, some snacks. We walk up to that counter at the corner store right now, yep. and we've got a couple of choices, right? We could pull physical cash, and, you know, I could pull paper paper bills and coins out of my pocket and pay. And if I slide the, that paper currency across the till, that small business owner could turn right around and use it to pay his employees or pay someone at the back door, you know, to buy a new set of goods to restock the shelves, right? That money, that was an instant transfer of value based on a physical token, right? Right. That represents, you know, represents value. We've, you know, obviously over the past decades, you know, become more and more, you know, have enjoyed this notion of I could also, you know, swipe my credit card or now tap it and the like. And from my user perspective, it's instant, right? I've, I've done an action and then, you know, and then I get the goods, right? And so from my perspective, that's, in, that's instant. From the merchant's perspective, that was a, to your point around ones and zeros messaging, right? That in that moment, a message went from me to my bank to check funds availability. You know, did I have credit? Did I have credit available? You know, message back to the merchant's bank, uh, you know, and the merchant and between the four of us, the consumer, the consumer, you know, the issuing, you know, multiple messages and reconciliation to all check. Yeah. Was there enough money there? Was this valid? And the merchant's going to pay a fee and they're going to ultimately get the money, you know, a day or two later. That's great. Right. And so this whole messaging reconciliation that happened behind the scenes. So now with this notion of central bank digital currency, I can actually do something that's much more like that cash transaction than the credit card one. I can walk up to that counter and I'm whole, I've chosen to, you know, you know, earlier in the day, I chose to download some CBDC tokens and you know, dollar, some digital dollars onto my phone. I'm holding them as these digital bearer instruments on my phone and I tap the terminal and now suddenly that merchant has them in that moment and can turn around and use them, you know, for, for whatever's going to be helpful for them. 
this, you know, that may seem overly simplistic for that, you know, for, for purchasing that pack of gum, you know, at the corner store, but think about what that, what that kind of dynamic can mean for a, a small merchant with respect to online transactions and how they participate in, you know, in the digital commerce world. It's a massive simplification of that exchange of value. The next question that often gets asked, sorry, I'm jumping on you. <laughs> no, no, go keep going. I'm playing your role now for a second. Keep going. Is, well, well, should, you know, aren't the, so the credit card company should be super afraid of this. And the answer is not at all. <laughs> They're actually very much in the, in the boat here um, trying to push for, for this kind of modernization. Because of course, there's nothing in, in that, in what I described that changes the notion of how much we, of credit, right? I like, I'd love to pay in 30 days. You know, that's not in play. It's really just a different form of physical cash that works better in the digital world. So you see the credit card companies, uh, you know, spending a lot of time and investment in this space to be able to, you know, work with digital tokens as easily as they work with messages, you know, messaging and reconciliation today with electronic balances. So how does that look for a credit card company? Because let's take for the perspective of, you know, let's imagine we're the credit card company, right? So we issue individuals lines of credit. They go and spend whatever money they spend, credit they spend. We then pay the merchants, let's say within two to three days of swipe. That's typically, I think, a good payback period I've seen. And then it's our duty at the end of the bill period, which might be 30 days from today, to then go hunt down our customers and say, hey, you got to pay me back the money uh, you know, it's in 30 days. So does that dynamic change? Because isn't the concept of credit still the same, even if we go to a central, central bank digital currency? Exactly. Yeah, that part doesn't change. Right. You know, this is an alternative for debit transactions, certainly, where someone wants to move the money immediately. It's really, you know, really the, the easiest way to think about it is it's cash. It's a form of, ca- of physical cash made specifically for the digital world. So if you want to do a cash transaction, but you want to be able to, to do it in, a digi- you know, in, a, in the digital world, whether it's an online transaction or at that corner store, it's the instant movement of value digitally instead of physically. So explain to our audience why this is, let's say, why would this be necessary? Because, you know, in a way we already have this, right? Because we already have, you mentioned the credit card. It, it knows me. It knows who I am. When I swipe, it knows that I owe this merchant this amount of money. The money is going to eventually transfer. You know, what, what, makes, what benefits exist if instead of Capital One giving me a line of credit bank to the US dollar, that Capital One is now issuing tokens? So- I'm going to preface this as, as I'm not suggesting it's a panacea for the issue of financial inclusion, but we see it actually being a huge catalyst to be able to include more people financially. So if, if we think about even in the U.S. context, there are banking deserts. There are places where there isn't a bank branch for hundreds of miles you know, around. Wow. And for that person to be able to participate you know, in, in the traditional financial system, it's, it's really quite difficult. But almost everyone has a cell phone. Right, the cell phone penetration in in the in, you know in the population that's not financially included is actually quite high. Yeah. Again, not a panacea. There are those that can't even get access to the, you know to a cell phone, and that's a big problem. You know, massive problem. Yeah. But for those people that are not financially included, but are cell phone enabled, right now for them to be able to, for them to be able to receive a stimulus payment, or for them to be able to shop online, they're needing to go and buy a prepaid debit card, pay a huge fee for that, and then use that prepaid debit card to be able to transact online. The whole notion of having the ability to have a digital wallet on their phone where they could you know, receive and then use to pay 
you know, a digital currency, you know, then suddenly opens up avenues that are, that are just very difficult and expensive for them today. And what goes along with that is we're hoping a, a, a serious conversation from a regulatory and legislative perspective around treating digital currency much closer to how physical cash is treated with respect to onboarding and AML KYC. So no one needs to be onboarded to use cash. No. Right. You, you don't have to, you don't have to, you don't have to sign up to use cash. Right. Right. I have it. I can use it. <laughs> Anybody can use it. Yep. If I find it, I can use it. <laughs> and so we're, we're hoping that the, as part of this dialogue and as part of us launching pilots for US CBDC, we can explore that notion of what is the appropriate standard for opening up a digital wallet into which you can put digital currencies of all kinds, right? And be able to, to work with them. And how could that then lead, you know, that, that could then lead to the establishment of identity that can then could, you know, later suit being onboarded to the traditional financial system. You know, is it an entry point to get people participating in the digital economy, you know, working with money in a, you know, in a different way, being able to transact online and making it an easier entry point to then upgrade to, um, you know, to more traditional bank access points for, you know, checking and savings and, and credit cards. So it's a big dial. It's a dialogue we're going to have to have around, you know, certainly we don't want to do any, you know, we, do, we would only want to enhance, you know, financial crime management, not, not take anything away from it. Today that, you know, most people, many people probably, you know, don't know, you know, what the laws are, are around, um, even with physical cash, right? Anything over $10,000 needs to be reported, you know, so there's, there's an existing threshold that's in play. You know, can we maintain that threshold, evaluate, you know, what different thresholds might mean, but really just start to think about this as a mechanism to get more people financially included, meet their expectations and requirements for privacy and security, and be able to address this notion of, of you know, those excluded because of banking deserts or lack of availability or, or you know, the, the thresholds that keep them back. Yeah. And you, I think you made a great point. I mean, that's something I wasn't thinking about until you mentioned it, which is we've taken for granted. I, th- I assume a lot of people that listen to the podcast or in the industries we're in, credit's not actually that easy to get. You know, it was for us, but not everybody is easy to get credit or have a card. And then they might not live in an environment that has those, that availability, as you mentioned. I had a question for you. So when you take a look out at the timeline horizon, so I won't go too far into the future, but in the short-term future, does that mean that every private bank is going to have its own CBDC? Do you think that that could potentially happen? So definitionally, a central bank digital currency is issued by the central bank. So it's one per country, right? It's one, one per central bank. Okay. And the model that we're working with as the starting point, as we've looked at, you know, we, as again, as we've been working with central banks around the world, the, the model that we're starting with is something that works within for central bank digital currency, works within the existing two-tier banking system. So the Fed and Treasury will be responsible for mint, minting these CBDC, t- CBDC tokens, distributing to the commercial bank infrastructure layer, just as they do today with uh, you know, electronic money and physical cash. And then they manage all of the endpoints where then we would interact with it. I could go to my ATM and I could say, look, I want to, I want to withdraw a hundred bucks in physical cash. And I want to re- withdraw a hundred bucks in CBDC tokens, you know, and whether you would do it at the ATM or on your phone, right. That's a different, you know, let's put that aside for a second, but I, I have that, I would have that ability to, uh, just as I could put physical cash in my wallet, I could put CBDC on my phone through my bank app. Right. And so that central bank digital currency by definition, it would be a system implemented, managed, run by the central bank 
with all of the characteristics of systemically important infrastructure, yeah. right? All of the common, you know, the, the well understood highest standards of safety, security, soundness, redundancy, you know, et cetera. And that's one kind of system. What you were referencing, I think, is then an incredibly important innovation frontier. I think that instrument of CBDC then is really simple and focused on the one use case of be a third form of money. Okay. So in this innovation wave, there is the ability to add logic to these tokens. And that's where stable coins come in as a fantastic innovation frontier. So whether you look at, you know, at the, you know, stuff in the public domain, like a, you know, a JPMC coin or finality, you know, in the utility settlement coin, there's the notion of, can we use the same technology? Can we peg it to something like a, a U.S. central bank digital currency? So the value is stable, hence the word stable coin. Right. So there's no questions to its value, but now let's add business logic to it because the technology enables that. And let's pretend like, you know, FEMA coin right? Natural disaster happens. And when a natural disaster happens, we want to get money to those affected so that they can buy, you know, food, shelter, you know, there's a, you know, address all of the core of Maslow's hierarchy of, of get, you know, get safe and secure and, and fed and, and the like. And so, you know, or, or take food stamps as a, as a perspective, right? The, the, you know, food stamps is a physical token that enables someone to be able to feed themselves. You know, the whole notion of benefits distribution, the power to be able to say, look, you can now do that digitally. We could disperse the funds digitally. You could spend them online, but we as a society will, you know, let's, and again, all to all for great discussion to be had, but let's just say as a society, we choose to have that same logic that the food stamp should be used for purchasing food and not, you know, not anything else, right? Mm -hmm. That logic can then be embedded in the token and now suddenly that could work in the digital world where it can't today. Oh, that's amazing. You can't take a physical food stamp and go, you know, and go to an online retailer and, and apply it in the same ways that would be enabled here. And so the utility, you know, so that's a very, you know, I think a critically important social impact humanitarian, you know, potential. There's then the, you know, if I go to, you know, part of my other day job, right, then there's the capital markets application of <laughs> banks get really, you know, <laughs> you know, the whole utility finality and the whole utility settlement coin came together because banks realized that they had tremendous cost and inefficiency with the movement of money between them to facilitate large scale transactions. Same kind of thing. We can have amongst this, this ecosystem, we can add business logic to make how we work together more simple. And we can peg it, you know, to a, a, a currency, uh, you know, a traditional fiat currency to make sure that there's no question as to its value. So you answered two parts and introduced a new concept that I, I was already thinking about. One was, well, how in the world does it stabilize its price? And so you answered that, right? It's issued by the Fed and the U.S. government. So it's theoretically pegged to the dollar. Well, no, it's a CBD. Oh, sorry, let me, I'm sorry to jump over you there. But so it's not pegged to the dollar. The CBDC is a dollar, right? It is just a third form of money. So, which is critically important, right? Because it, right. you know, that only works if a dollar's a dollar's a dollar, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a, a paper bill, an electronic balance, or a digital token. Yeah. A stable coin can be pegged to that powerfully, but the stable coin still you know, is, is different in that the issuing entity has an impact on it. There you go. So it's not even pegged. It is a dollar. So therefore there's no volatility. That's the <laughs> CBDC, no volatility. All right. 
Yeah, because we see those tweets about people that, you know, spent, you know, 25 Bitcoin on a pizza when it first came out. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. So there's no fear there. That's not a fear. So we've eliminated that fear. You introduced a new value system, which I didn't even really think about, but I thought about how applicable it could have been this past year, which is that on the redemption side, these tokens could be coded so they could only re- be used to redeem or transact for certain products and services. And I think about reading these stories of PPP fraud where people were buying Lamborghinis. And how hard it was, again, to distribute that money. It was so hard to distribute that they forced applications for it. The people that applied for it typically had some type of a preparer. Now, you've probably already read all the stories, right? It was very difficult for the average Joe to even apply for it. So they had to get a preparer that would then go get it. Then the, the money was distributed over a long period of time. People were complaining how long it took to get distributions. Then the fraud came about, which is of the people who got them, some people didn't use them on payroll. They buying Lamborghinis and going on vacation. <laughs> so in your world, a CBDC is able to handle all of that, the distribution, the no need for application, because it would know, well, I guess there might be an application layer, but it, I, theoretically it could be simpler. I spend a lot of time on this with our clients, right? It, 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 we, we now have a incredibly powerful, configurable new option for how to work with money. Yeah. And it's not the technology that it's not the technology that's going to get in the way. It's, uh, you know, of, of pushing this forward. It's our collect the collective conversations we need to have around what do we value and what do we want to enable and what don't we want to enable? Yeah. And the learning curve of there's some things that require some real mental gymnastics here. And so, you know, <laughs> that's why we're talking through it. <laughs> yeah. It's maybe one of the bigger, you know, the bigger aspects of mental gymnastics is this notion that you can simultaneously improve the ability to manage financial crime because of the ability to, to have the lineage of data, the provenance of data of these tokens is it can be enabled where I can know, you know, if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, right, you can, you can trace back all of the transactions back to its original, you know, back to its original minting. Yeah. That's wildly powerful. If you're trying, if you want to be able to, you know, manage financial crime, you know, and understand the nature of transactions, it also is wildly, um, you know, invasive if you're looking for the privacy of transactions uh, and, you know, and are using cash and don't, you know, the, there's, there are, there are societal value choices we're going to need to make with regards to, you know, auditability, visibility, and, you know, versus privacy, you know, and, and the like. Now, the interesting thing, and this is the mental gymnastics is you can actually have both. Yeah. The technology is ena- enables the configurable option that says, um, particularly with central bank digital currency, the power of it for the U.S. is with the central bank and the Fed being the one to issue, they're limited then by constitutional law as to what what data they are actually they actually could be allowed to uh, to read, see, or act upon. And it would warrant it would require you know just, uh, you know uh, probable cause and a warrant to be able to read into the system. So there's a constitutionally protected layer of privacy that we believe would be implicit in you know a U.S. digital dollar, and so. At this, and then at the same time, the law and regulation says that above a $10,000 threshold, it has to be reported. And so the technology is powerful enough that you can configure exactly that. The operating system through which these tokens can flow can basically say under $10,000, we're not going to capture track or, or, you know, or report on, you know, on who's doing what. But as soon as you flip past that threshold, we can. Or we can collectively as a society decide that we want to change that or modify it. It's the, the powerful configuration of configurable technology that's at our hands. It's going to lead to some fascinating 
you know, societal discussions and choices. All right. So that's on the technology side. Are you also on the policy side? We're trying to inf- help inform the policy side. There you go. With what the technology can do. So Chris Giancarlo from, from you know, one of my co-directors of the Digital Dollar Project testified a number of times before Congress over the summer to be able to share some of our, you know, our views and, and perspectives as to how this might play out and to offer perspectives on, on what those conversations should be as we get into the next phase as a nation and launch pilots around them. That's exactly what we want to test. We want to, you know, that the technology is now proven enough that we're not we're not really testing the tech itself very much anymore. There's still lots to do on that front, but the the core of it is: can we test user acceptance, usability? Yeah. Uh, you know, the the policy choices, the the regulatory modernization that might need to be happen in certain areas. You know, can we learn from? You know, we need to learn from from you know very well managed pilots to be able to inform those conversations. So no, we certainly you know we'll leave the policy making to the policymakers, <laughs> but we <laughs> we certainly want to um, to do our part to add uh, the you know the knowledge understanding of the of how the technology can work and how and how it can be uh, can be valuably applied. You know, we we've had a couple CISOs on the show information security officers, and it, they always kind of have a common theme where people are the problem. Uh, so it sounds like- It weren't for the humans. We know <laughs> Everything would be great if it wasn't for the people that did it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a long haul. I'm curious, like what is, so one of the things I wanted to ask, you know, and if you don't mind is, this is a very huge project you guys are undertaking. Accenture, clearly a for-profit company. How does Accenture benefit from pushing this type of digital innovation, currency innovation forward? We're talking about the large-scale modernization of our financial infrastructure. And throughout our history, right, we've been partners to all of the players who have built and manage and operate that infrastructure. So gotcha. while I'm, I'm donating my time's team effort and money to, to getting the conversation going for the Digital Dollar Project, and importantly, want to make sure that that's a non-commercial exercise, I'm not at all, you know, trying to hide the fact that, of course, as central bank digital currency comes into play, it's then, you know, it's going to be a huge business. Yeah. To be able to help build these systems, integrate them, operate them. That's all, that's all core to what we do. And we're a little bit different. I mean, one of the things that I'm very proud of, and again, we make sure is clear in the positioning of why we're playing is we are the world's largest technology company, but we don't have a platform in the in play, yeah. right? We don't have a dog in the fight as to it should be this platform or that platform. We maintain our independence there to basically say, look, as technologists, we know we know what's required to build systemically important infrastructure and how and how to do it and how to do it well. Right. And we'll we'll always choose to work with whatever the leading you know platforms are and technologies are to do that. And we want to maintain that independence to be able to, you know, work with different players in different contexts because of the different requirements. So we're, we're, our independence is important at this stage. We don't, we're, we're not, we don't have a dog in the fight in terms of the technology. Makes total sense. You had mentioned a couple of different nations earlier. You mentioned Switzerland and France. Sweden. Sweden, sorry. Among the countries you're working with, who, which ones do you think are closest to potentially adopting this or introducing this? Yeah, so uh, so just I'm, I'm going to pick on your language slightly, and that I'm not going to comment. Okay. I, I'll, I'll I'll be explicit as to where we're actually working with the country, but let me let me answer your question around what where what, which countries are furthest ahead. 
I, we always maintain client confidentiality. <laughs> Fair enough. Enough just, but um, uh, China's uh, China's obviously ahead. They mm-hmm. you know they are now in production testing. You know uh, you know distributing and and working with uh, you know the digital yuan uh, right now. Uh, and so yeah, so they're you know kudos to them. They they are, they're out they're out and learning because they're out uh, you know out with it and in real people's hands doing real transactions you know in pilot. Wow. Right. So it's not a countrywide rollout. It's very, you know, it's very focused and specific. Right. But they're absolutely ahead in that regard. You know, with with you know Sweden, um, you know Sweden, I've got to got to have to give a lot of credit to for again, uh, you know, being er, being early and uh, and very thoughtful and and on the innovation frontier. And then lots more. At this point, the BI the BIS put out a report. The Bank of International Settlements put out a report. I don't know, three four months ago um, that that showed that eighty percent of the world's central banks. Are in and in some stage of the journey. Wow! And so there will be a material number of central bank digital currencies in some form of production testing or implementation by 2025, which you know is is a blink blink of an eye in the in the modernization of financial infrastructure. That number is a lot higher than I expected. You say 80 percent of central banks are already experimenting in some capacity. They're in some uh, on some stage of the journey. Exactly. That's pretty phenomenal. I mean, this sounds like it's going to happen. Oh, it's it, I, I'm, I'm clearly biased, but <laughs> yeah. my strong view is that is that and and it's supported by the BIS reports and a lot of I mean just having uh, Chairman Powell and and uh, and Janet Yellen uh, you know Treasury Treasury Yellen uh, two weeks ago uh, you know highlight in the public domain that the, that U.S. CBDC is now a priority for them right we've tripped over if uh, into when and how. Yeah, I mean, if we if we really think about it, from the very beginning, the U.S. dollar was meant to be traceable. It's just that no one can because no one can read those serial numbers <laughs> at scale, right? It was always the intent. It never it never had the technology to support it, other than writing it down on a piece of paper. I don't think that was for tracing. Tra- it wasn't the serial numbers, not for tracing transactions. It's the provable uniqueness of the phys- of the physical token. But um, yeah. It, it, I am a, I'm a bit of a history buff. It is, you know, it is interesting to think about, you know, it is, it is kind of once in a, you know, once in a couple of generations that we do rethink about, rethink the nature of money and what it is, you know, and so the, you know, the last time there was a material, you know, material change in innovation, right, was in the, I think it was 1857 that, um, that we pivoted away from the Spanish real as being uh, one of the primary currencies in col- in colonial America, and you know, and it's and at that point in time, it was the dominant world reserve currency because it was the most functional. The reason it was most you know it was most functional because you could cut it, and you know it's the, this is the origin. It was the origin of the whole phrase uh, "pieces of eight, right? And pirate lore and technology was, but you could take you could take a real and you could cut it in half, and then you had, you know, then so it was, you know, it's eight real, you can make it four real or two real, because you could literally, it was a functional currency because you could cut it, and it was well-liked because it was consistent, right, globally consistent. And And so just as that was the condition in the 1800s, I think right now, the most functional currency is going to be more and more dominant in the world's, you know, in the world's financial infrastructure. And so this is an important, it's an important journey. It's you know we we like to say it's more much more critically important to get it right than get it fast mm-hmm. uh, or, or first. But the most functional currencies will be the ones that underpin the most transactions. So I'm gonna pl- let's have a little fun with this, a little look into the future. I wrote down some of the use cases, and I want you to tell me what's gonna happen. 
All right. <laughs> a little fun. All right. Let's do it. So right now when I go on vacation, it costs me a fortune to get the other currency, the, the, you know, the currency of the nation I'm going to. If you go, if I land at the airport, the rake fee is like, you know, 15, 20%, it feels like. I don't know if it's actually that high, but you know what I'm talking about. Getting foreign currency is actually quite difficult. With CBDC, this should be a nominal fee. Is that accurate? It's um, it, it, ha- it has the potential to be vastly easier to do. You're not going to go to zero cost there, um, yeah, but, but, but that's that's not um, you know as long and, and uh, of course the, there's a difference between that um, that transaction fee versus you know the the FX difference. Um, so coin of the realm's not going away, mm-hmm. right? You know that whole notion. You know there's some interesting brainstorming and dialogue around you know a, a universal currency, but at the end, of, but the you know what that would require would be glo- a global conversation around common policy choices and societal choices. Dave, it, it's a tough one. It ain't gonna happen. We haven't decided on the plug. We haven't decided on the plug. How are we gonna decide on the money? Right? Like <laughs> we, we still, every country still has its own plug. <laughs> yeah, time zone changes. Yes, but the daylight savings. Uh, the, the, um, yeah, exactly. So, um, so yeah. So it will become vastly easier. Yeah. Right. So today, to move money, you know, cross border to move money around the world, re- you know, requires that material messaging and reconciliation, and and so just being able to work more effectively in the digital world and move tokens digitally is going to make that simpler. Which you know, I should bring the cost down around that. That's what I'm thinking. I think I could, if I were to, you know, I'm thinking about my surfing trips to like places like instantly, I should be able to instantly convert based on the exchange rate and some nominal fee, the digital tokens of that nation. It feels like it's very possible. So we'll see. Well, and it also, it all, it also, I mean, just at a very basic level, right. And, and, and this, you know, this cuts, cuts two ways, you know, that need to have that person manning the desk at that exchange desk in the airport Right. If that all can now be done easily digitally, yeah, can't today, then you know that also you know hopefully you know that then that person can go do something you know a much more interesting job, right? So um, it, yeah. it should you know strip out that human factor of doing that physical currency conversion, and you know that that will reduce the cost as well. When you think about all the banks that keep uh, currency in circulation that they can't use investments and loans, right? Because they're just holding all these multitudes of currency. Just for if just for the purpose of exchange. Yep. So that that sounds like it's going to be easier. That's fantastic. So this is something I think about with FDIC insuring my is this mean that people are going to have more split up? Uh, I don't know what to call them anymore. Will they be banks like wallets? Like, where are we going to call them in the future? You'll have a wallet on your phone. I would bet, you know, you might, you might, and, and I, I think it's logical to think that your bank will offer you that wallet and some services wrapped around it. Right. I think you'll make the same choices you do today. So how much physical cash do you keep, you know, in your house is, you know, almost none. Yeah. So yeah. don't ever come to my house. You'll be sadly disappointed. <laughs> you know, none, none for you and me. There's still, you know, there's still people with, you know, stuff under their mattresses out there, but certainly we're seeing a global decline in the, in the use of cash, physical cash. We think that'll accelerate. Right. But the reason you don't, you know, part of the reason you don't keep all that cash you know, and certainly in a more normal interest rate environment is, you know, there's a value to putting it in the bank. And you talked about FDIC insurance, right? There's a safekeeping aspect of it. Yeah. And then, you know, again, not today, but, you know, in the past and certainly at some point in the future, again, there's, I'm going to earn interest on it by putting it in my savings account. It's the purpose of my savings account. And so just as you kind of manage how much cash do I have have to have on hand and I can put it back, you know, I can, I can download, you know, digital current central bank, digital currency tokens, and I can put them back. 
and I put them back so that they're in safekeeping and they, you know, and they start to earn interest and the bank then, you know, just like they do with their cash balances, uh, you know, will be able to then lend off of them and keep the whole liquidity of the system moving. So if a bank is my storage, then users will choose how much storage they have and then how much token, active token is in their wallet. Well, and, and you're, you may be asking a, a more complicated question. Just like if I walk up to a bank teller with a $10 bill, yeah, they're going to accept it and then they're going to put it in the drawer. Yeah, And if I go back a week later, I'm not going to get that same $10 bill back. Right, right. right? If I say I want to withdraw 10 bucks, right? I'm going to get whatever $10, like, so this is called an omnibus account structure, right? The, the bank is taking custody of it and, it and it will work the same with CBDC, right? So I'll download a CBDC token and I'll spend it or move it. And so different from some of the ways that custody of cryptocurrency is happening where there are forms of it, um, you know, forms of it where I'm, if I'm putting on, if I'm putting a Bitcoin on deposit, I'm going to get that Bitcoin back. That also is kind of awkward. And I think that's going away. But for CBDC, um, think of it much more like it's much acts much more like cash just right. made for the digital world. So then the bank is going to have on its ledger and you'll be able to see on your ledger that you have $10 in. That's right. And when you go to get your $10 token. And I could, well, and I can, and I could take, I could say, I want a $5 bill and I want a, right. and I want $5 in CBDC token, right? My choice. There you go. And I can put it back and do it differently and get, you know, all of it in one or the other. Okay. All right. I think, I, I think I can, I can see that happening. All right. I got one more for you. <laughs> this one might even be hard for me to explain <laughs> or no, it's pretty easy to explain or ask. Will financial crimes be easier to reverse? It seems like if everything's tokenized, it's going to be really hard to commit financial crime. Because like, let's, let's, let's use an example, right? Email scamming, where people say, hey, Dave, if you just wire me 20 grand. I got, I'll use it to move 20 million. I'll give you 40 grand on top. You know? <laughs> well, we know those scams are happening all the time. And the only reason why they, we keep getting those emails is because unfortunately, people are falling for it. But if you're telling me this money's now traceable, across nations potentially, then theoretically you should see the end point of it and may hopefully be able to reverse it because it's probably all being collected somewhere, right? Some owner has all these wallets that's collecting all this money. Is it going to be much easier to reverse financial crimes? So the answer is yes. With the caveat of we've got some choices to make as to what do we want to enable or not enable with the tech. Right. So in terms of the, in terms of the base, and this is, again, this is what we want to prove out in the pilots is what kind of choices would we make? But yes, the technology would enable much, much more granular tracking provenance and audit history of, of the movement of money. And that raises some really interesting societal and policy questions around what, what do we, what's okay with that and what's not. Right. There's certainly a really important dynamic around, you know, our global regulatory focus on whether, you know, whether it's GDPR, California privacy, you know, what Google and Apple are doing right now with, you know, changes to cookies. Right. I think as a society, we're valuing more, more privacy. Um, and the interesting part of this technology is we is, is again, and this takes, you know, this may take another hour session. We could do <laughs> on, a, on a deep tech version. Um, you know, interestingly, you can have you can have both in in some really interesting ways. So, so yes, I think it will be a, a real improvement to financial crime management in combination with lots of other innovation that's underway around digital identity, in particular. I look forward to that. It's one of my biggest things I think about. <laughs> I don't know why. I just think about it. <laughs> Dave, it's been awesome having you on the show, kind of giving us a you know, view into the future if tokenization or central, uh, I can't even say it, CBDC 
become standardized, what that could potentially mean for us. You know, a lot of times I think when people don't understand the use cases, they just think like it's just, you know, tech guys talking tech speak, talking about blockchain, the value of blockchain. And people joke all the time, like, well, blockchain doesn't have a use case yet. Now it sounds like it does. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's an old that's an old talk track. That's an old talk track. Exactly. Well, it's time for us to enter the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. And Dave, this is where we ask you questions about you outside of work so our audience can get to know you a little better. Awesome. Let's do it. All right. So we looked you up on LinkedIn. It looked like you went to school at both Penn and Michigan. Is that right? It's true. All right. Which was the more fun school to attend? <laughs> uh, let's go. Uh, I'm going to go uh, Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. I've always thought D1 schools, D1 football schools have more fun. Yeah. You know, I, I love, I love Penn, had a blast at Penn, but it's kind of hard to go through the rest of my life. We're rooting for the Penn Quakers uh, on, <laughs> on, on Saturdays. It's a lot easier to, to, you know, go blue. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. When's the next time Michigan's going to beat Ohio state in football? Uh, every year from now on. <laughs> I love it. You're very hopeful, man. <laughs> Which city has the worst winters Ann Arbor or Pennsylvania or, or Philadelphia? Oh, Philly. I'm, I love winter. Yeah. Cold, the colder and snowier, the better. Okay. <laughs> do you uh, have any winter activities that you like to do? I've fallen off the bandwagon a little bit, but uh, skiing and snowboarding. Uh, and if you go back far enough into my youth, I did uh, ice climbing and winter mountaineering. Ice climbing? Yeah. And you're a daredevil. <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was a long time ago. I don't know too much about it other than that it's extremely dangerous. So I found it much easier than rock climbing. Um, really? Yeah. It, and I could be much, much less precise as long as I didn't cut my rope with the, uh, <laughs> as long as I didn't cut my rope with my uh, crampon or ice axe. Uh, yeah. Much easier than rock climbing. All right. Do you actually, do you currently invest in cryptocurrency? I do not. You do not. Interesting. Is there a reason why? Uh, the, the short answer is, um, yeah, I know too much about the systems risk associated with it to be smart enough to have done that. So, uh, yeah, I just, my risk profile, highly vol volatile asset and, uh, and the, and the underlying systems risk, uh, just keeps me, keeps me at bay. All right. That's it. I'm going to take out 20%. <laughs> Dave. I appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionaries, kind of sharing your future, your vision for what CBDC could mean for the future of, you know, not only our, like the world, basically the world and how things can, things can change. Thanks for sharing a little bit about your career and your insight. And of course, you know, I'm cheering for Michigan as well. My son wishes to attend there. I'd like for your uh, wish to come true. <laughs> Michigan over Ohio State every year from this year forward. Exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's fun. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. <laughs>